chapter 18, 2 Samuel 18 tonight. Once again, Lord, we, we come before you just uh, seeking your will. Trusting, Lord Jesus, in the foundation. As Paul said, the foundation is Christ. Trusting and believing, Lord, tonight that there is only one Christ. But tragically, sadly, there are many antichrists. Many who would try to take the place, try to be another Christ. We see it more and more in the world in which we live. And honestly, Father, I have some days where it bums me out and other days where it makes me hopping mad. I think today I'm hopping mad. Just hearing about the deception that is in the world. And being made aware of the lies and the confusion, even as it infiltrates the church. And Father, we desire to be the pure and spotless bride, Jesus, that you present to yourself on that great and glorious day. Not the unfaithful bride who is chasing after other suitors. Father, we want, we want the foundation and strength of your word. And we want to walk and remain in truth. And Jesus, as we study even back in the life of David tonight, we pray that you will shed more light on your truth and ground us more firmly that we would not be like rudderless ships tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Give us the truth tonight, Father. And Holy Spirit, speak through your word to our hearts that we might be released to true freedom as we look to the coming kingdom we pray in Jesus name Amen as we open the pages of scripture tonight the rebellion against David along with Absalom himself the leader of the rebellion is dead and we studied this on Sunday, the first half of chapter 18, we looked at the, at the death, the tragic death of Absalom, who died pierced through by Joab's spears, hanging in a tree as his head got stuck there. Remember, he was riding his mule, and he, he comes face to face with some of the servants of David there in the heat of battle in the forest of Ephraim. As he comes around this corner and sees the servants of David, he tries to flee. But as he flees riding this mule, his head gets stuck in the branches of a, of a major oak tree, and he's left dangling between heaven and earth as the mule continues onward. And Joab hears of it and comes quickly with three spears or, or darts or arrows. Not sure what it is. The word Shabbat in the Hebrew can mean any of the three. But he comes and he jabs Absalom through the heart, killing him. Well, just about killing him. He's finished off then by Joab's vicious men who gather around. Dead hanging in the tree. Well, it's a curse. To hang in a tree, cursed is anyone who hangs in a tree, you should bury him that day. That's what the Deuteronomic law tells us. And so they took him down and they threw him in a pit. And we talked about that interesting parallel again on Sunday. Once again, we see parallels to the death of Jesus, who also died cursed in a tree, who also was pierced in the side, who also went down to the pit. And you can think through that, and if you weren't here on Sunday, that, that teaching is... is uh, it's on the internet and it is accessible now, by the way. Who was asking? Where's Mary? It's, it's working now. So we got that one going. But you may recall that this was not what David told his commanders to do. In chapter 18, verse 5, if you look back a few verses or, or up a few verses wherever you are there, the king charged Joab and Abishai and Atai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. In other words, bring him back alive. Spare him. Be careful with him. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. But Joab is short on tenderness and mercy. And so Absalom died brutally. But the question is, we begin tonight, we're going to pick up in verse 19. The question is, who's to let David know? Who's going to be the bearer of this news about his son Absalom? After all, it doesn't bode well to be a messenger to tell David that someone he respected has died. Or in this case, someone he loved deeply is dead. Though Absalom was fighting on the opposite side, trying to usurp his father's throne, David still loved him with a very deep fatherly love. Though their relationship was torn, 
one of the most dysfunctional father-son relationships in all of Scripture, though it was a messy, hard, difficult relationship, David loved Absalom deeply, and so someone needs to go tell him. Now you may think back, you Bible students, remember that when Saul died, an Amalekite, who claimed to run Saul through, ran to tell David, thinking he would garner David's good favor. Well, David in turn had him run through, saying in 2 Samuel 1.14, How is it you were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go cut him down. So he struck him and he died. And David said to him, Your blood is on your head, for your mouth is testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. David was very serious about the Lord's anointed, even though at that time it was Saul, who was, by all counts, a jerk. A crazed man who wanted David dead, yet David said, He's the Lord's anointed, I will not touch him. Remember, David had two opportunities where he could have killed Saul himself. I won't do it, I will not lay a hand against the Lord's anointed. So when this Amalekite does, David has no patience with him and has him immediately executed for killing the king. When Saul's son, Ishbosheth, then came into power and took over. And Ishbosheth was a weak ruler, ended up ruling for about two years. But when he took over, and a couple of, of brutes, a couple of thugs, came along and they kill Ishbosheth in his bed, they run as messengers to David then to tell him what they had done. Hey, we took out Ishbosheth, your adversary, so now you can be king. And David responded, 2 Samuel 4.10, saying, When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? So David commanded the young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside a pool in Hebron, thus canceling family swim for at least two weeks. I think you'd want to swim in a pool with their hands and feet hanging on the wall. Anyway, the deal here is that you do not want to bring the one who, you want to, don't want to be the one who brings murderous news to King David, especially when the one killed is the anointed one. Saul was God's anointed. Ishbosheth, David respected as anointed, and even his son Absalom, who had not been in his place very long, who was usurping the kingdom, even Absalom had been anointed by Israel. Who's going to go tell David the news? I tell you this, this this evening, before we even get into the chapter, because David took the Lord's anointed very seriously, and so should we. If there's one thing that concerns me more than anything else in the world today, it's people not taking Jesus seriously. We don't have any problem taking Jesus as a bud. Jesus as a friend. Jesus as a, as a righteous dude. You know, a hangout kind of a guy. Oh, we like Jesus. Like his teachings. He was cool. But considering Jesus as the anointed one of God, the king, people have trouble with that. The absolute lordship of Jesus, though we might even call out Jesus is my Lord, we don't consider and think about the seriousness of that. And in our world today, I, I was sent a, a blog this week that I read through just, just this, uh, this morning. And it really bothered me. And I'm going to read a little bit of it to you here. There's six pages. I'll just pull out a few things I want you to hear. Oprah Winfrey... <laughs> Clearly a woman of great respect among us tonight, I, I guess. Oprah Winfrey will be letting out all the stops on her XM satellite radio program this coming year. Perhaps you've heard about this. Beginning January 1st, 2008, so it's already started. Oprah and Friends will offer a year-long course on the New Age teachings called A Course in Miracles. Have you heard of A Course in Miracles? A Course in Miracles, well, let me tell you about this. A lesson a day throughout the year will be completely, will completely cover the 365 lessons from the Course in Miracles workbook. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. A Course in Miracles, cool. I'd like to find out more about miracles. And I believe in the supernatural. I believe in a God who gifts us to heal and, and, and even gifts us for the working of miracles. But some examples from this Course in Miracles workbook, lesson number 29, ask you to go through your day affirming that God is in everything I see. Not God created everything I see. God is in everything I see. 
Well, that's not too bad, maybe you would think. But lesson number 61 tells each person to repeat the affirmation, I am the light of the world. Really? Lesson number 70 teaches the students to say and believe, my salvation comes from me. By the end of the year, Oprah and Friends listeners will have completed all the lessons laid out in the Course of Miracles workbook. A Course in Miracles is allegedly, quote, a new revelation from Jesus to help humanity work through these troubled times. This quote-unquote Jesus, who bears no doctrinal resemblance to the Bible's Jesus Christ, began apparently delivering his channeled teachings in 1965 to a Columbia University professor of medical psychology by the name of Helen Schuchman. One day, Schuchman heard an inner voice stating, This is a course in miracles. Please take notes. For seven years, she diligently took spiritual dictation from this inner voice that described himself as Jesus. A Course in Miracles was quietly published in 1975 by the Foundation for Inner Peace. For many years, the Course was an underground cult classic for New Age seekers who studied the Course individually with friends or in small study groups. The person writing this article actually had studied that and was very deep into the New Age and writes the following, When I left the New Age, quote, Christ, to follow the Bible's Jesus Christ, I had come to understand that the Jesus of A Course in Miracles was a false Christ. That his course in miracles was dangerously deceptive. And here are some more quotes from the Jesus in this course in miracles. There is no sin. A slain Christ has no meaning. The journey to the cross should be the last useless journey. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Which <laughs> breaks my heart to hear that. The name of Jesus Christ is such as such is but a symbol. It is a symbol that is safely used as a replacement for the many names of all the gods to which you pray. God is in everything I see. The recognition of God is the recognition of yourself. The oneness of the Creator and the creation is your wholeness, your sanity, and your limitless power. You'll love this one. The atonement is the final lesson man need learn, for it teaches him that having never sinned, he has no need of salvation. And this is the Course in Miracles. Oprah's program is airing it all through this year. He writes, I was introduced to A Course in Miracles by Dr. Gerald Jampolsky's book, Love is Letting Go of Fear. Jampolsky declared in his easy-to-read book how the teachings of A Course in Miracles had changed his life. As an ambassador for A Course in Miracles over the years, Jampolsky has been featured not only in New Age circles, but at least twice on Robert Schuller's Hour of Power. While Schuller introduced Jampolsky and his fabulous Course in Miracles-based books to his worldwide television audience, it was Marianne Williamson's appearance on the 1992 Oprah Winfrey Show that really shook the rafters. She goes on to talk about that. Further down it says, The New Age teachings of A Course in Miracles are about to be taught by Marianne Williamson to millions of listeners on Oprah's XM satellite radio program. An audio version of A Course in Miracles is recited by Richard Thomas, John Boy Walton, also is available on compact disc. At this critical time in the history of the world, this author writes, the new gospel, quote, slash new spirituality is coming right at the world and the church with its new age teaching and its new age peace plan. But an even surer sign of the times is that most Christians are not taking heed to what is happening in the world and in the church. We are not contending for the faith, as the Bible admonishes us to do, Jude 3. It is time for all of our purpose-driven and emerging church pastors to address the real issue of the day. Our true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is being reinvented, redefined, and blasphemed right in front of our eyes, and hardly anyone seems to notice or care. If we want the world to know who Jesus Christ is, we need to also warn them about who He is not. There is a false New Age Christ making huge inroads into the world and into the church. And this stuff, like I said, sometimes I get bummed and sometimes I get worried and sometimes I get scared and other times I just get plain hopping mad. Because as I look at the life of David as we began tonight and I'm thinking about his attitude toward the anointed king who was a man who was just a human. David had absolute respect for that king in the same way we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to absolute respect 
and love in our Lord Jesus. Regardless of this, of this so-called Jesus, this falsely named Jesus in a course of miracles, the Bible tells us in Psalm 2 verse 6, God says, As for me, I have established my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Do homage to the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus later came along in Matthew 10.28 and said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to both destroy body and soul in hell. Strong words. Fear the king. Fear the anointed one. Approach Jesus Christ not only as Savior and friend, yes, approach him that way, but we also approach him as Almighty God, as our Lord as the one to whom we owe everything, including our deepest respect. Our precious Jesus, whom we love, is also the great King whom we fear and we hold up. And we need, brothers and sisters, to be Christians in this world who know Jesus, the real Jesus. And you are not going to know Jesus, the real Jesus, through experiences. You will know Him through His Word. And we need to be in His Word. And I'm going to come back to that again and again and again until you're so tired of hearing me say it. Or at least until you're saying it to other people. It's the Word. Harlan, we were talking about this on Sunday. Man, how do you know what the inner voice inside of you is saying? How do you know the inner voice inside of you is even the Holy Spirit of God? I'll tell you how you know. You test everything by the Word that He has given us. And so we have surety and foundation and confidence. As I pray and I get direction from the Lord, I test everything and I know, yes, this is from the Lord. Or boy, no, that was just me. Because there's still an awful lot of me in there. And all that me that's in there needs to be set aside. And I want to be one who comes to recognize the voice of Jesus Christ. How do I do that? By His Word. The more I'm in the Word, I'll tell you, the more I understand and know when Jesus, the real Jesus, is speaking to my heart. Well, as we begin tonight, someone needs to tell David that his son is dead. David, who is the great respecter of the Anointed One. And so verse 19 will begin right there. And I'm going to step off my soapbox for just a moment. I may step back up in a few minutes, so just prepare yourselves. Verse 19. Then Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please let me run and bring the king the news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You are not the man to carry news this day. You shall carry news another day. However, you shall carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Now, at this point, Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, Zadok's the priest, one of two priests in Jerusalem. Ahimeaz, I don't think, really knows who killed Absalom. He just knows Absalom is dead, but he doesn't know all the facts. I don't think he realizes Joab was the one who did it. I think he's a little fuzzy on that stuff. He just knows they won. There's victory. Absalom's dead. The king can be restored now to his throne. David, this is good news. And he's not really thinking about the ramifications of this. And so Joab says, back off Ahimeaz. Settle down. Let's send somebody else. <laughs> Otherwise, you may be the dead one. Verse 21 going on. So Joab said to the Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. <laughs> so the Cushite bowed to Joab and ran. Now Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me run also after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for your going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. So he said to him, run. Then Ahimeaz ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushite, went on by him. By the way, back up a second. Ahimeaz is so excited to carry the news. He wants to carry and share the news that there's victory. He's not thinking about what news he really has to carry, and that is that the king's son is dead. By contrast, the news that we get to carry is the king's son is alive. That's our message. The king's son is alive. What, what do you think it was like for Mary, Magdalene, on that Sunday morning, we're approaching Easter here, we're coming up to it, but on that Sunday, when she went to the tomb and it was empty, and then the angel spoke to them, and, and she's freaking out and trying to figure it out, and John tells us that as she was sitting there trying to understand all this and, and really depressed about it, a gardener begins talking to her, it's Jesus, 
She doesn't know it until he begins to speak and she recognizes and turns and she says, Oh, Rabbi, she grabs onto him and he goes, Okay, okay, chill out, relax. It's my translation. He does. He says, Hey, don't hold on to me. I haven't yet returned to my father. In other words, you don't have to grab me. I'm right here. Relax. And then he sends her back and she goes running back and the news on her heart and on her mouth and her lips is, The king's son is alive. Jesus is alive. He's here. John chapter 20 verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that's the message we bring. We don't bring the news of a dead son. We don't bring the news of a man-made religion, not even the news of personal family tradition. I got to come to my church. We got a good church. And I'd love you to become a member of my church. That's not the message. The message is the risen Jesus. The gospel message is the risen Lord. That's why it's called good news. But back to our story, this is not good news. You and I get to bring good news because the risen son, though he was dead, now he is yet alive. So it tells us Ahimeaz, he runs along, passes up the Cushite. Now David, verse 24, was sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked. And behold, a man running by himself. The watchman called and told the king. And the king said, if he's by himself, then there is good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, Behold, another man is running by himself. And the king said, This, is also, this one is also bringing good news. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimeaz, the son of Zadok. Now, I don't know how he recognized that. You know, did Ahimeaz have kind of a, a funky run, you know? Was he, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I did, but he was recognized by the way he ran. Cheryl, my wife, is easy to recognize when she runs. <laughs> and I'm going to leave it right there. <laughs> Yeah, my kids are here. It'll get back to her. Anyway, so, so he recognizes that Ahimeaz is running along, and the king said, this is a good man, and he comes with good news. After a battle, if masses were fleeing back into the city, that was a bad sign. But when one man is running, that's a good sign. That means that there's victory, that there's clearing out the battlefield. And David recognizes this and, and, and his heart leaps as he thinks, good, this is good news coming. By the way, evangelism, speaking the good news, is usually best done personally, one to one. Notice how the Lord throughout scriptures, he tends to send one runner or maybe two runners together. He rarely sends a committee <laughs> to preach the gospel. He rarely has a large group of people to send in mass on a person and hammer them with the truth. He sends one runner with the good news. Two runners with the good news of the risen Lord. Coming back to what we were saying before about knowing Jesus, each one of us individually are called upon to know and be able to speak the good news. Not the church, not the committee of elders, not the pastor, not a board. Not the evangelism team. We each individually are called to be runners, bringers of the good news. Don't rely on someone else to do it. God has called you to do it. He has called me to do it individually, personally. 2 Timothy 2.15 That's why Paul says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Jesus said in Luke 12.11, Don't worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. It's a combination of things, gang. It's knowing the Word. It's having the Word so in you that you've got something to draw on. That as you're talking with someone, speaking with someone, the Spirit can say, Hey, tell them this first. They're going to like that one. Hey, remember this? Remember when you studied this? Share that. And you've got it in yourself to give. Which is why, again, I'm so excited that you all are here. And that you're taking time to be in the Word. So the men come running. Verse 28 tells us, Ahimeaz called and said to the king, All is well! All is not well. He prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And he said, Blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Interesting. He doesn't ask how the army's doing. He's not asking how the, how the battle went. He's saying, okay, great, great, great. How's Absalom? First thing on his mind. How's my son? 
And the Himeas answered, When Joab the king sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. He doesn't want to tell David what's going on, what's happening. Verse 30, Then the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Behold, the Cushite arrived. And the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has, re- has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Still the only thing on David's mind. How's my son? Is he okay? And the Cushite answered, Let all the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man Boom. David realized it. My son is dead. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And this he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It wasn't the battle that mattered to David. It wasn't even his throne at this point. It was only his son Absalom because David loved his son deeply. Does he kill the Cushite? Does he run him through? No. In this moment, David is so absolutely shaken, he breaks down. It all comes crashing in. He's deeply moved. The Hebrew for deeply moved is ragaz. And it means to tremble or to shake with emotional disturbance. It's a very violent word, a violent shaking. Absolutely torn apart. And this passage is the second most passionate expression of grief in the entire Bible. You read that verse over, it's almost hard to read. Almost embarrassing. You know, you know when you're in a situation and someone is weeping and, and you just you want to put a hand on their shoulder, but you're almost not sure if you should touch them because it's so personal and so intimate. And so sorrowful, and that's David here. My son, Absalom, my son, my son. Repeated again and again, he is just absolutely wiped out. I believe it's partially because he loved his son so much, I think also David is finally now feeling the full weight of all of his own sin crashing in on him. The full weight of the fallout. Back in chapter 12, verse 10, we were told, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. David gets to mourn the rape of his daughter Tamar. He mourns the murder of his son Amnon. David now mourns the murder, the death and battle of his son Absalom. His divided house and all of it, gang, all of it can be traced back to a single one night stand. Why is God so serious about sin? We see in the story of David that this fallout goes on and on and on. J. Vernon McGee even made the comment when he, in his commentary on this, he says, you know, at this point you almost just want to stand up and say, Lord, enough. (laughs) Enough. David has had enough. Because it's all, now the weight of this has crushed him. David knows where it all originates. Now I said this is the second most passionate expression of grief in the Bible. Turn in your Bibles over to Mark chapter 14 for a moment. Mark chapter 14 for the number one expression of passionate grief. Mark 14 verse 32. Mark writes, they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. Very distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And as he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Luke tells us he was so distressed that his capillaries in his forehead, and we're told medically that this actually happens at a point of intense 
stress. The capillaries begin to expand under the skin and you literally sweat blood. And Jesus sweat blood that night in the garden. So upset was he. The two words used here in verse 33 are interesting to note. He was very distressed and troubled. The word very distressed in the Greek is the word ekthombeo, which means to tremble with sheer terror. Jesus in the garden, as he prayed, was trembling with sheer terror. The word troubled is adamanoo and is the strongest New Testament word for depression. When that word is used, you're talking about deepest, bottom of the barrel, depression. And so at the same time, Jesus' anxiety is a trembling with absolute terror. And he's as depressed as you can get as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't believe Jesus was trembling or depressed or anxious for himself. I don't believe it was just, okay, I'm going to be hung up on a cross tomorrow. This is going to be painful. This is going to, ow, this is going to hurt. What was it that Jesus faced in the garden that led him to be distressed to the point of death, sweating blood, almost dying? It tells us even that angels had to come and minister to him. Some believe because had they not, he would have died right there. Why would he be so upset? Because in the same way that David had to deal with the full weight of his own sin crashing down on him, Jesus, I believe in that moment, saw the full weight of humanity's sin that was the mantle he was going to get to wear on the cross. He saw your sin. He saw my sin. And as it came down upon him, he was very distressed, he was troubled, he was shaking in the garden. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. That's the passion. That's the passion of our King who loved each of us so very much. That's why I get riled up when I read stuff like this. False Christ coming into the world. False Christ being presented even in the church. And if we could stop and see Jesus in that moment in Gethsemane, if we could feel one iota of the pain that he felt in making that decision to go forward and be crucified, wearing our sin, man, it would, it would stop us dead in our tracks. I think every time we have the opportunity to make a sin choice, if we could just see Jesus there quickly, momentarily, we would stop and flee sin simply for what it did to Jesus. So deeply moved and upset he was. Well, back to our story. David, he bore the weight of his sin in this moment. The full weight of it, but it was just his, unlike Jesus, who bore all of our sins. Well, chapter 19 going on in verse 1, it says, It was told to Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the king heard it said that day, the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. Don't anybody doubt for a moment how David felt about Absalom. The people then, it says, went by stealth into the city that day. As people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. No victory here. Yeah, they won. Yeah, David was going to be restored and and back on the throne. And all these people, they won a victory. They won the battle, man. But when they began to realize how upsetting it was for David, they had to slink into the city quietly. Almost as though humiliated. Verse 4, the king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I mean, can you imagine this reverberating throughout the city of David as David cries from the rooftop or from the inner chambers of his, of his palace? But Joab came into the house to the king, dumb, brutish Joab. He said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. This is what you've done, David, Joab says. You're loving Absalom. He hated you. He didn't care about you. You're all upset about him. And you're hating those who love you by making them slink into the city like they've lost a battle. You've shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you'd be pleased. Joab 
really wasn't that tender a guy <laughs> kind of missed it now therefore he says verse 7 arise go out and speak kindly to your servants for I swear by the Lord if you do not go out surely not a man will pass the night with you and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from, upon you from your youth until now you better do something about this right now or you're going to lose the whole thing David he says he, he, he couldn't fathom the love of David for Absalom Joab was a military man he was a fighter he was a good fighter he was a shrewd military leader but he did not get David's love for his son had he understood it even slightly he would not have driven spikes spears through the heart of Absalom he obviously didn't understand he didn't get David's love at all I don't know that David ever found out by the way scripture doesn't indicate that David ever knew that it was Joab who did the actual killing that may have been withheld from David or it may just be that David possibly had an idea but he didn't want to pursue it (laughs) he didn't want to know how it happened verse 8 going on it says so the king arose and sat in the gate when they told all the people saying behold the king is sitting in the gate then all the people came before the king now Israel had fled each to his tent all the people here are David's people who had stood with him and fought with him those of Israel were those who were against the king and they're afraid to come back they're all hiding out they fled each one to his own tent by the way I, I think it's interesting that the word tent is used here <laughs> which tells me after all these many many years even now that they're under their second king well third if you want to stick Absalom in for a brief few days Israel still is living in tents they have still not settled the land they're still living as though they're not sure that this is their promised land it's amazing when we do that we talked about this a bit last week as Christians sometimes we have trouble settling the land we remain in tents kind of going well I think I'm saved pretty sure and Jesus is saying let the cross settle it for you once and for all you don't need to dwell in tents you have a home that's being prepared for you so they're in tents <laughs> verse 9 says all the people were quarreling throughout all the tribes of Israel saying the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines but now he has fled out of the land from Absalom however Absalom who we, whom we anointed over us has died in battle now then why are you silent about bringing the king back so they're arguing throughout Israel what should we do I don't know should we re-elect him I don't, should we get someone else what do we do Absalom's dead can't do it what? and so then King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest saying speak to the elders of Judah saying why are you the last to bring the king back to his house since the word of all Israel has come to the king even to his house you are my brothers you are my bone and flesh why didn't, should you be the last to bring back the king so what's going on here is in all the politics of the moment the people of Israel of the ten northern tribes are beginning to say well Absalom's dead David did you know bring us safety and security in the land and we need to go back and restore the king and Judah is being silent so David says to the priest to say give Judah a chance I mean shouldn't they be the ones to restore me first seeing as I'm one of them I come from the tribe of Judah then he begins after appealing to his own tribe he begins to make shrewd political moves watch this David says verse 13 say to Amasa are you not my bone and flesh may God do so to me and more also if you will not become commander of the army before me continually in the place of Joab Amasa I want want to hire you who's Amasa he was commander of the army of Absalom he was fighting on the other side And, and David's saying I'm going to put him over my army what are you doing David I'm, I'm talking restoration reunifying the country bringing the people back together crossing the aisle Republicans, Democrats everybody all together in the same place David's thinking wisely in verse 14 he turned the hearts of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king saying return you and all your servants so Amasa gets placed over David's enemies in a very very smart shrewd move of reunification but what about Joab why does he get cut out of the deal I don't think it's because he killed Absalom because still there's no indication Joab knew that I think if, or David knew that I think if David knew Joab had killed Absalom 
Joab would be dead. But David does not want him to be over his army anymore. He's going to put Amasa there instead. Why is that? Because I think he's had it with Joab. David is fed up. Joab has crossed David one too many times, so he gets demoted. In the story, we've seen Joab do this. David gives very specific orders, and Joab goes out and does his own thing. Back in chapter 3, he signed a peace treaty with Abner, who was Saul's captain. And Abner goes away, and Joab follows after him and calls him back. And when he comes back, Joab kills him, which was not David's plan. Joab makes a big mess of things. David says, deal gently with my son Absalom. What does Joab do? He kills him. Joab is continually going around behind David. And he's going to do it again, by the way, by making a mess of Amasa. He's going to kill this guy. He's going to run him through. After David puts him in charge of the battle. And here's the problem. Joab's loyalty was based on power, not love. And there's a big difference between loyalty that is power-based and love-based. In the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the order of things will be very different. Loyalty will not be based on power. It will be based on love. Those who serve in the kingdom will serve because they love Jesus with heart, mind, soul, and strength. We will serve because we have a love relationship with Jesus now. Not just a loyalty because I think Jesus is going to win and I want to be on the power side and I want my place serving in the kingdom. I'd like to be over some of Jesus' armies. That'd be cool. No, it's because we love Jesus. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Jesus called his apostles to himself and said, You know those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's, that's another kingdom standard. We talked about the kingdom on Sunday. Another standard for the kingdom of Jesus Christ is servant-heartedness. It's seeing those who love and serve, not those who seek position and power. Now the rest of this chapter 19 is all about the restoration process. As David is on the east side of the, of the Jordan River, and he's going to come back now to take the throne in Jerusalem. And it's interesting what takes place here as people begin coming back. People who made decisions to be on the other side now start to realize, I made the wrong choice and David's coming back. Watch this. Verse 15, the king then returned and came as far as the Jordan. And Judah came to Gilgal in order to go and meet the king to bring the king across the Jordan. Three men. We had three men we talked about at the end last week. Three men this week. First one is Shimei. Shimei. Tells us verse 16, then Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, who was from uh, Baharim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. You might note these three guys. If you're a note taker, I'm going to jot this down. Shimei is the cursing one. Shimei, the cursing one. He came down to meet King David. Verse 17 tells us, There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, with Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his 15 sons and his 20 servants with him. And they rushed to the Jordan before the king. Ziba's in there too. Remember Ziba who, well, we'll get there in a second. So Shimei is coming along. Verse 18, they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. So he said to the king, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my lord the king came out from Jerusalem so that the king would take it to heart. What does Shimei do? Remember? He's running along the hills up above David going, You cursed one! Loser! Throwing rocks, kicking up dust. Throwing dust because, remember, it indicates, I want you to be buried. I wish you were dead underground. This guy's just shooting off his mouth, cursing David. And now David's king again and coming back in. And Shimei's like, Oh no! This is not good! He throws himself in the mercy of the court. Please don't take it to heart. Your servant knows that I have sinned, verse 20. Therefore, behold, I have come today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said, Should not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? <laughs> Abishai said the same thing before when they were walking along. And Shimei is cursing. He says, Dave, can I just go kill him right now? Is that okay with you? No, don't kill him. 
So now Abishai wants to do it again. Can we just take this guy out? He's bugging me. This is Abishai's answer to everything. Just drive the sword through him. So David then said, verse 22, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should be that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am the king over Israel today? He says, verse 23, The king said to Shimei, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. He shows great grace to this prophet of doom, this, this cursing one. But now the tables have turned, and Shimei the cursing one wants forgiveness, and he gets it. He gets it. Temporarily. He gets partial forgiveness. This guy's a man short on loyalty who needs to be kept on a short leash. David's going to keep an eye on Shimei, and the outcome for Shimei is not going to be good. I'll share in a moment. But Romans 16, 17, Paul describes a Shimei-type character. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. We talked about this verse a few weeks back, and it, it kind of spun me around to realize that Paul says there are people, even in the church, that you are to turn away from. That's the one type of person, in even Christian relationships, where the Bible says, turn away from them. One type, who? The one who stirs up strife and dissension. The one who would divide rather than unify in the body. Paul says, that person, don't have anything to do with them. Shimei is that type of person. So you got Shimei, the cursing one. Then you have Mephibosheth, the crippled son. Mephibosheth, the crippled son, verse 24, tells us, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, for he had neither cared for his feet nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came home in peace. Someone wash this boy. Mephibosheth clearly missed David. Mephibosheth goes into this period of mourning while David is gone. Can, Can you even imagine? Remember Mephibosheth, the crippled one who David brought in, adopted like his own son. He ate at his table every night. You can almost imagine Mephibosheth you know limping in or brought in a wheelchair or having someone carried him in I don't know but coming into the dining hall at night just David's not here looking out the window of that dining hall to the east wondering if David's going to return he missed him dearly you ever miss Jesus like that? you ever look out the window and just think are you coming Lord? I don't even feel like shaving today <laughs> I'm going to let my toenails go because man I just I don't want to think about that I miss you Lord you ever find yourself longing for the return of the king and not because this world is bad not because this world is hard or you're having a tough time but just because you miss the king just because you love Jesus and you can't wait to see him I think he wants to develop that heart in us in Mark chapter 2, verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees, it says, were fasting. And they came to Jesus and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, Well, the bridegroom is with them. The attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? I'm right here. Why should they fast when I'm here? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But Jesus says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Why, Lord? Because they'll miss the bridegroom. Do you miss Jesus? If you don't miss Jesus, let me encourage you to spend a little more time with Him. Just kind of sit in the Gospels for a while. Listen to His teaching. Let let His voice pierce your heart and I guarantee you'll find yourself missing Him. And just saying, I would love to see Him just, just to see Him. On the best of days, I still long for Jesus' return. So Mephibosheth was in that frame of mind and it was verse 25 when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him why did you not go with me Mephibosheth? So he answered oh my lord the king my servant deceived me for your servant said I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king because your servant's lame. Moreover he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my Lord, the King is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your sight. 
For all my father's household were nothing but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you sent your servant among those who ate at your own table. What right do I have yet that I should complain any more to the king? He's like, I got deceived. I, I, I wanted to come. I saddled up the donkey and I put the bread and the grapes and stuff on it to go. And next thing I know I turn around and it's gone. And Ziba took it and he lied to you and he deceived you. How is David to know? I mean, when this kind of betrayal happens, how do you really know who's on your side and who's not? How does he know at this moment? Obviously, Shimei, oh, I'm so sorry, you know. Didn't mean to throw rocks at you. <laughs> Just kidding around, you know. Of course he wasn't. So now David's looking at Mephibosheth, who he had given a great grace to. How does he really know that Mephibosheth was tricked? How can he figure it out? Well, the king said to him, verse 29, why do you still speak of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. What? Now on first reading you kind of go, okay, wait, think back to the story. Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, comes along and tells David Mephibosheth has betrayed him, and, but he alone, he's on David's side, so David says, great, all of the land that I gave to Mephibosheth, it's yours. So now Mephibosheth comes back and says you were deceived, and David says... What am I supposed to do, man? I'll tell you what. You and Ziba divide the land. That's my decision. Why would he do that? I mean, at first it kind of seems unfair. I take the side of Mephibosheth. He was tricked. Not fair, David. Come on, give him the land back. Ziba's a jerk. He didn't get it. He doesn't deserve it. Why should he have to divide the land now with his false servant? When I read this, I think, I wonder if David was just blowing Mephibosheth off, or maybe he was just tired, sick and tired of all the betrayals and the politics and all that stuff, just whatever, no, just divide the land, maybe just trying to get him off his, off his case, or maybe, maybe David is showing the wisdom of Solomon, maybe Solomon got his wisdom from his father David. You remember what Solomon did when the two women came in and they were fighting over whose baby it was? Cut the baby in half. What? Obviously he didn't want to cut a baby in half. But the real mother said, no, 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 let her have her. Let her, let her have it. Let, let her keep the best. okay. Keep the baby. And Solomon knew immediately who the real mother was. So, so David here says to Mephibosheth, divide the land. What is Mephibosheth's answer? Let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely into his own house. And David knew whose side Mephibosheth was on. I don't need the land. Whatever. I just want to sit at the table again. Can we have dinner tonight? Hang out. You know? I'll tuck my little crippled legs under the table and I'll be like everybody else. <laughs> Can't we do that? <laughs> Let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely into his own house. So you have Shimei, who's trying to kiss up to the king, and you have Mephibosheth, who just loves the king. And then you have the third guy, Barzillai, Barzillai, who is a cheerful benefactor. Verse 31, Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on to the Jordan with the king to escort him over the Jordan. Now Barzillai was very old, being 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. Well, the king said to Barzillai, you shall cross over with me, and I will sustain you in Jerusalem with me. In other words, come on, come retire in Jerusalem. I will take care of every need of yours. Barzillai said to the king, how long have I yet to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I'm now 80 years old. Can I distinguish between the good and the bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any more, more the voice of singing men and women? Can I tell who should win American Idol? Can I tell the difference between Ruth's Chris or McDonald's? The taste is gone, the hearing's gone, the sight's gone, I'm 80 years old. What, what do you want to serve me for? Why should then, he says, my, your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant would merely cross over the Jordan with the king. I just want to walk with you in your triumphal return. Why should the king compensate me with this reward? Please, he says, verse 7, 37, let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. However, here is your servant, Timham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him 
what is good in your sight. Well, the king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what is good in your sight, and whatever you require of me, I will do for you. And all the people crossed over the Jordan, and the king crossed too, and the king then kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his place. Barzillai, the cheerful benefactor. We know two things in scripture about this man Barzillai, just two things. We know he provided for David and his people when they fled into the wilderness, along with Shobi and Makir. And we know he passed along the favor of the king to this man named Kimham, who may have been his son. I don't know for sure, but it's possible that Kimham was the son of Barzillai. But in this attitude of Barzillai, we see graciousness. Ah, I don't need it. I can't taste it or hear it or enjoy it anymore. But why don't you take this person in my place? Why don't you provide for him? As a favor to me, let him come with you. He's content to give another the favor of the king. Now when you feel, think about these, these three people, I, I, was, I was thinking how interesting it is that they come to the king in different ways. And so do we. We all come to the king in different ways. Shimei, some come to Jesus like Shimei. You know, their reward is simply not being punished. I'll become a Christian, you know, just to make sure I don't go to hell. I just don't want to get punished. So if you can guarantee that, then I'll go to church. And it's a Shimei attitude. I just don't want to get nailed for what I'm doing. Sadly, though, when you come to Jesus for fire insurance, the cursing and rebellion is still hanging in the air. The cursing and the rebellion is probably still there in a heart that has not been replaced with love for the king, a heart that's just fearing. And Shimei, it's interesting, is like people coming to church, part of the Christian crowd, but it's because it works for now. But if the tables turn, life gets hard, they may shake their fists and start cursing God again and be out the door. Jesus tells in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 1-8, he talks about the different soils. You've probably heard the parable. He talks about the hard-packed soil of the road. And the seed is spread, the seed being the word of God, Jesus tells his apostles later. And the seed is spread out on the road, but birds come and they steal the seed. So it never really penetrates and gets in. Or the rocky soil, where the seeds fall in there and the scorching of the sun causes the seeds just to burn up so they never get in. It's a picture of hard times. Or the thorny soil, where the word may start to take root, but it gets choked out by the thorns. Are you in any of those places? Those three soils. The hard-packed soil where the word never takes root. Or the rocky soil where hard times steal the word from you. Or the thorny soil where the cares and stress of life. And I think that's a big one in America. Thorny soil. There's just too much going on in my life. I'm too stressed out. I've got too many problems. I just can't deal with that church stuff right now. That's how Shimei came to David. There's no guarantee but that Shimei is going to turn once again. Jesus said other seed fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. For the soil to be good, when we come to Jesus, we've got to leave the cursing behind. You could put it this way. If rebellion is not given over to repentance, deep change will never come. If my rebellion doesn't become true repentance, which is that outpouring of of confession out of love for Jesus and let me encourage you if you're a believer today but you've never really poured out your heart to Jesus and said I am a sinner and I am so sorry I'm not sorry because I was caught I'm sorry because of the pain I put you through I'm sorry because you had to weep in the garden over me I'm sorry because of how my life affected you Lord because I love you that's repentance and that kind of repentance will drive out rebellion I don't believe the rebellion ever really left Shimei. I think he probably continued to badmouth David. Why is that? Well, because if you skip over to 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8, David is on his deathbed, and the last charge of David to his son Solomon is as follows. Behold, there is with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite of Bahurim, It was he who cursed me with a violent curse on the day I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished. 
You're a wise man, David says to Solomon. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. David now going back on his word, I think David's prophesying. He's saying this is going to happen. You're going to bring him. Why? Why would David suddenly say this? And why on his deathbed is he bringing this up? We can only guess. This is not, you know, this is Rick's guess here. So don't take it as fact. But I assume that from the day that Shimei came back and asked forgiveness to the day David died, that in between, Shimei was still bad-mouthing the king. He's still causing problems. And so when David dies, he says, Solomon, you don't want a man like that running around the kingdom. Get him out. Solomon will. But we'll see that when we come to it. Some come to Jesus like Mephibosheth. Their reward is nothing more and nothing less than just being with the king. I don't care if I get anything. I don't care if my crown is big. If it's got many jewels, I don't even care. You know, except that, you know, whatever's given to me, I can give back. I just want to be in the dining room with Jesus. I really like Mephibosheth. This guy's been victimized twice now in his life in two big ways. The first time as a boy, as Saul is killed, and his, his servant woman grabs him, goes running out of the room and falls, and he loses his legs, loses the ability to walk because he's dropped by her. And he lives the life of a victim raised in Lodabar, this, this dry, arid place. Now for the second time, Mephibosheth is victimized again by his own servant Ziba. And the attitude, the heart of Mephibosheth is not, Woe is me, it's just not fair, the world's so hard on me. Mephibosheth's attitude is, is the king coming back? Is he on his throne? Is he in the dining room? Order me a hamburger, I am so there. Wherever the king is, that's where he wants to be. Some people come to Jesus like Mephibosheth. Some people come to Jesus like Barzillai. And I really love this. His reward was seeing someone else rewarded. Take him home and reward him and that will be good for me. I was so cool about this guy. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? You are our glory and our joy. So we've got to pick one of these three. I'd go either Mephibosheth or Barzillai. Take that attitude. Come to Jesus just to be with Jesus. Come to Jesus hoping to see someone else receive their reward. Now verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal and Kimham went on with him. And all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel accompanied the king. And behold, all the men of Israel came to the king and they said to the king, Why had our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him over the Jordan? Then all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative to us. Why are you angry about this matter? Have we eaten at all the king's expense? At all the king's expense, or has anything been taken for us? But the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten parts of the king. Therefore, we have more claim on David than you. Why then do you treat us with contempt? Was it not our advice first to bring back our king? And they're fighting and bickering. Yet the words of the men of Judah were harsher than the words of the men of Israel. What a great day this was. Now they're arguing over who gets to have claim to bringing back David. The men of Israel had the idea, let's bring back and restore him as king. The men of Judah quickly went across the Jordan, get him, and bring him back. Now the men of Israel are going, come on, that's not fair. Foul. It's not right. What? Come on, man. Such a picture of the fickle nature of man. The king is coming back while the people are fighting over the credit. Sometimes we see this in the church. The king is coming back. We're bickering over who gets credit. Over who's doing the better preaching or who has the better worship. Or who has got the more stylish church. We're all over doing this. And the king's coming, man. He is coming back to rule. One minute we can be all about the king and the next minute we're nailing him to the cross. And that's exactly what happened. The same people who cried Hosanna, one week later were crying, crucify him. Such is the picture of the nature of man. No such thing as sin? Yeah, right. We see it all the time. We live it all the time. We are fully aware of it. 
This is why I believe Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14 The love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ, not the love of man. The love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on His behalf, or on their behalf. As we come to Jesus, may it not be like Shimei, may it be like Mephibosheth, who loved his Lord, or Barzillai, who loved his Lord's servants. But may we always come, however we come, Revelation 22.17 The Spirit and the Bride say come And let the one who hears say come And let the one who is thirsty come And let the one who wishes to take the water of life Without cost Come